Hi, my name is Carl Lillerud, and you're listening to the Scene World podcast. Sup? It's the Scene World podcast. I'm AJ. That's Jurg over there. Hi. Hi. Um, so, in a minute, who are we talking to today? Dennis Orbai. Dennis Orbai. About retro gaming in Japan. Yes. And because he is kind of a... Well, he is a Japanese expert, and we wanted to concentrate on Japan, especially since you, AJ, mentioned it a couple of times, you wonder what happened with Commodore and other stuff yeah. in Japan, as we never hear, hear much from it. So I sat together with Martin Aman discussing what we can do about this topic, and then we came to the conclusion that uh, we ask um, Dennis Orbay to talk to us. Yes. So uh, this will be a part of a series. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. And that was always my my uh, contention was always that you know Commodore existed in um, Japan. It was a company. They released a C sixty four. I mean, they they released a Japanese specific model of the C sixty four in Japan. So right. um, to not have any kind of a demo scene or anything like that, or, or even a retro scene, seemed a little off to me because they are. I mean, there 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 are a lot of retro stuff things going on over there. There's like you know, I've heard of vending machines that that'll kick out retro stuff. Um, you know, like it's not like like retro is not a thing in Japan. It's just that the sixty four, kind of yeah, thing. the, the sixty four, you don't quite hear about as much, or at all. So this sort of came yeah. from from my confusion around that. Right. Um, well, I mean, it's the same similar situation where uh, we spoke with the Yandex Computer Museums guys mm -hmm. about the situation in Russia that you never hear much about right. outside of Russia. Right, right. So it's just that outside of, uh, of, of the particular country, you never hear much. Or did you, he did you know that video games were illegal in uh, Venezuela? We didn't know before, before no, we, we did didn't not. have the... Petro, um, um, yeah, you know, planners uh, mm -hmm. talking to, to us about it. Right. So right. sometimes it's good to have people that are speciali specialized and knowledgeable about a certain region of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and then, of course, there's unfortunately still a thing of lang language barrier, um, which, as you know me, um, I take it in my personal life as a non-issue, <laughs> but as we also know, a lot of people uh, take it as an issue to talk in English to an international audience. Speaking of it's language like, issues, uh, you yeah. may, uh, people may notice that Jörg doesn't sound quite himself today, and that's because his microphone broke, so he's using yes. the built-in yeah. webcam microphone to, right, um, right. to record yeah. this. Yeah, the mini-USB connector broke off. Mm -hmm. And that is actually why uh, why the industry changed to micro USB mm -hmm. because mini USB isn't as sturdy as the micro USB. Right, right. And this, this since this was an old model from 2014, the uh, um, the uh, Samsung 
Meteor microphone from 2014, it's still using um, mini USB. Yeah. So actually, yeah. what happened to me is that the connector broke off, which is exactly what happens if you put too much stress on it and connect disconnect cables. And I mean, I, I always have it moving because I don't have it constantly sitting on my desk. And mini USB is kind of like it's the, it's the sort of like hourglass shaped one. Yeah, yeah, and, and the micro mic is more of a like a little near round. Yeah, 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 and especially, especially uh, because of um, of these requirements, you know, for example, loading cables for smartphones. Mm -hmm. They they really they really developed um, um, min, um, micro USB to be more sturdy. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh really? Okay, that's <laughs> really that's so uncommon to see that. It's it's really USB B. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I was not expecting that because usually this is not used for microphones and stuff. Oh, but the, wow. oh, maybe the Snowball Ice doesn't use it then. Okay. Well, so first bit of news is the online store of Protovision is back up. Okay. Didn't know it was down. We had it in the last oh, okay. in the podcast before the that's last right, one. That's right, we did. Yes, that they that they disabled it because of Corona mm. and too much problems and uh, private life and stuff. And yes. now it's it resumed. And also they put it on a new provider, which means it's a faster web poster, so it should be faster than before. Nice, nice. Yeah, which is. Which is nice, but uh, personally, me accessing for Germany, I didn't really feel any slowdowns. But perhaps that I was didn't, just me. I didn't either. But you know, it's always nice to be faster. I mean, the web page is things. It's, it's like twenty years old, so mm -hmm. it's um, not really not really um, resource intensive in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, well, and the second bit of news is the um, Richard Painter, who made a game 34 years ago that was called Warren and was supposed to be released by Firebird. Actually, he got in touch with, with games that were in 64 and actually finished the game oh. after 34 years. Yeah. Nice. And um, God, that must have it. sucked. That must have been a rough thing to do because yeah. I have trouble picking up code after I haven't looked at it in a week. Imagine yeah. 34 well, years. Well, it was 17 years back then when yeah. he started coding it. Um, yeah. And now, now it can finally be completed without using sheets. And he also added some sound effects and music that was missing. Okay. And the title screen, so now it can be downloaded and played from James Games that weren't sixty four. Um, it was originally supposed to come out by Firebird. Is it still a game that wasn't though? Because now it is a game that is. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. It was. Originally uh, developed by Richard Painter, as said before, mm -hmm. as a sort of top-down challenge-based arcade game. Right, right. And um, well, 
he felt the need to finally finish and release it to the world. Excellent. Yeah. That's always a good thing. I, I, I like having things finally released and... Um, me too, me too. Yeah, yeah. And, and discovered. Yeah. I, I remember when I pulled out all my C64 stuff and started going through old discs, like the things that I discovered that were like, ooh, this is... And, 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 and now trying to figure out what to do with them because it's like, okay, I've got... I've got some things that we can release, and how do I go about doing this? Mm. I don't want to just tr dump it out into the world and be like, "Here's a well, here's a eighty percent finished web uh, or demo page that that no one ever bothered to finish with." Well, in '98, I recovered the original discs from the um, coder of Legends of Kirill, mm -hmm. the round based um, strat strategy game and gave it to so many groups and people but nobody ever finished it mm. and that's a that's a pity because andrew fisher metal title music for it and um it's supposed to be 80 percent complete do you still have it and uh, sure i have it okay and i mean i sent it four years ago to games that weren't mm -hmm. but honestly you know david simmons Yes, Jazz I, know, cat. I know Dave, yeah. Uh -huh. Soon means like never. <laughs> Will never be released. Hmm. This is a shame. I've never, yeah, I'd, I've never gotten that impression from him, but. I don't think it will ever see the light of the day. Oh, okay. And I, I gave up asking him about it. Hmm. Was it always the same same answer. Soon, yeah. soon. So, okay. games that weren't. If yes. you really want to release the game, release it. You got the discs. Yes. Put it out there. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Um, my my. So sometimes it's just a matter of uh, time or motivation, not mm -hmm. of finding the discs. Yeah, and it's also well, uh, interestingly. Uh, I think... Interestingly, by the way, what you didn't know is they never updated their homepage. Hmm. They never really said on their homepage that I gave them the di original discs and they were supposed to finish it. Hmm. So, well, you know, a lot of times it comes down also to, you know, the kind of interest that the game is going to have. You know, like, was it something that would have been a big game back in the day or is it something that's... It's been you know, a big game back in the day, definitely. Okay. I mean, it's... Um, it's either, I think it was 35... 35 double-sided discs. Oh, Jesus uh, Christ. 35 um, discs. I mean, let's see. Let's see. I mean, I I have the email with just all the disc images from Andrew Fisher. 35 discs. Wait, wait. How much? How much? Let's see. That couldn't let's have see. been like the, the... No, that was like work files and stuff. Like like final release. Yeah, one, right. One, right, one right, disc. Right, right. Yeah, I can see it taking a while too when you're dealing with 35 discs. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, well, the last news I got is they will take a look in 2018. That was eight, uh, three years ago. Mm -hmm. Never happened. Well. Yeah. Again, they could still, I mean, 
something like that many discs and that much work could take. And again, you know, this is a hobbyist activity, so, you know, it, it might take a little bit of time to get it done. So they may be working on it. You know, it's, it might not be an I issue. Doubt, of, I highly doubt it. Eh. I highly doubt it. I, 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 I don't think they even looked at it. That's what I think. Well, and I will I, keep it in so they can correct me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. But they never got back to me on this. So Frank Gasking, if you listen to this or anybody, please get back to me on this because I'm tired of asking and getting always the same answer like soon, soon, next year, next year, next year. And my, my, from my perspective, they never really looked at it, which is such a shame because I sent it to so many people, so many cracker groups, and everybody told me, like, yeah, we will look into it. Nobody ever did in 22 well, years. I mean, looking into it is one thing, but actually doing something with it is yeah. another thing. But if you even don't look into it, nobody gave me a feedback if it's really 80% done. If it can be done, nobody ever gave me feedback in 22 years. So what people don't know is the length that I went through because what people don't know that Crystal Software um, uh, Netherlands never, never, the, the reason why the game wasn't finished is that Crystal Software in the Netherlands, which is important because also Crystal Software in, in UK, um, stopped paying them because they didn't see a market. Right. They stopped right. Um, uh, paying the developers mm -hmm. in Austria and I went through the lengths to ex contacted Alex de Vries in the Netherlands asking him about it I had long phone calls with him as a teenager um, for many 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 weeks and then I tracked down the project leader in Austria and had a phone call and he actually scrambled and found the discs and send it to me by post mm -hmm. because back then people didn't have really have internet in 98 in Germany. Right. So, and then I made copies of that and send it to people like um, Robin Harper, like James Gamestead Warrens, even Protovision got a copy. So I, I made physical copies and actually it was Andrew Fisher who, dig, who digitized them into D64 files. Mm -hmm. And also the problem was that one or two disks had read errors. So even that had to be sorted out to, to prevent further damage to the disks. Right, right. So this was all before internet, before I had Skype, WhatsApp or whatsoever. So this whole thing was damn expensive to make. And I, and I went through lengths to get those disks to rescue the game that nobody even even had the guts to go through and tell me if it's possible or not. Everybody just told me, send me the discs, I will look into it, and not a single person did for 22 years. So you can't tell me that it is, has to do with doing a side project if nobody even has the guts to look into it and tell me, like, um, can it be done or not? No. There should have been enough time in 22 years to at least look at what is in there because I'm not a coder. I can't tell. I only see, okay, this is, seems to be like graphic assets. This seems to be sound, sound assets. That's all about it. So I keep sending those disks to people, to crackers and groups. 
of course now nowadays I do it by email. As long as one person finally looks into it and gives me a real perspective if it can be finished or not. And until then I consider it a scam because nobody really had the guts going into it and telling me it can be done. So all those big big people who, who, who got those this image was from me. Nobody ever really gave me any feedback other than, yeah, I will look into it next next year. And that's that's and until then, I don't take such such um, things like games that weren't and other uh, cracker groups um, honest when they say, yeah, yeah, we do everything we can to rescue games. No, they don't. They don't. You, you know, it, yeah, it seems weird because all these cracking groups will crack. I mean, they'll crack games before they're even released at this point. You know, it's like if you put yeah. out the crappiest, you know, basic game, it'll be cracked the next day. And yeah. so you would think that they'd be on on it somewhere. So maybe maybe it's send me the disc. Send me the images. Sure. It's one click of email. I yeah. can send yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Send, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because I can at least I can I can tell you from my perspective as a coder. I mean, I mean, I originally in uh, originally when we formed Scene World, it was among our plans to actually finish the game. But what happened then is that Robin Harbin dropped off the surface of the Earth for us. Right. So right. We didn't have anybody to look into it. But yeah, sure, I can send you the discs. Sure. I don't know. I'm not so sure that Robin would be up to completing. I don't. You know, I'm probably not up to completing the game, but. But, anyway, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, but I can, anyway, I can I sent, look at them. And... I sent him the discs too to yeah. to the to the Canada, uh, which was uh, I mean, that was all before there was digital, mm -hmm. before there was internet. So I didn't have internet, so I couldn't just yeah, send right, the right. D64 images. Um, so, no, let's well, let's see, let's see, let's see. Anyway. I'm. Uh, let's see if this, this piece of the news will. Grape fest. I mean, it's just my honest opinion. When when every time when I read when I read we found a new game we completed the game we spent five years completing the game yes but you nobody spent the I don't know how much days or hours to give me feedback on. Can it be completed or not? Actually, I found I found I found the I found the email from Andrew. So it's a 15, 15 double-sided discs. It has been fifteen. Okay. okay. Yeah, that that There's is where, where the name where, where my thirty comes from. It was yeah. thirty disc sides. Yeah. That means fifteen games, uh, fifteen double-sided discs. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, um, yeah, and. And I mean, up to today, I kept it a secret. I never, I never said to people that you know, to the public, that I sent the discs around. But since nobody is doing anything with it, now I can say it. Hey, if anyone um, listening wants to do something with it, yeah, sure. I mean, email him and <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I forwarded now the email okay. to you. Okay. So let's see if you have an opinion about it, yes. or if you think that the eighty percent complete was total bullcrap. Yeah, I'll take a look. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. anyway those yes. Two news. Yes. I'm okay. sorry for the rant. That's but... okay. That's okay. Um, but every time I read that that yeah, you completed a game, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure you did. 
I mean, it's a it's a wonderful project, right? Yes, right, right. But but not being taken seriously really hurts. Hmm. But now everybody knows the story of the length I went through as a 16 years old teenager, <laughs> speaking to adults in foreign countries, having a big phone phone bill. I remember my mom was totally mad on me. 50 euros just for a phone call. <laughs> are you are you are you crazy? I had a few days. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had a, I had a better good, a greater good. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And my mom is of course like, who cares about a who who cares about a about a computer game, you know? <laughs> and actually, I I still I still remember the discs were sent in a Mozart as. A, Mozart pralines box. Okay. Which is, which is Mozart pralines are the the chocolate the sweets. Right, the right, sweets right. That Austria is known most for. Hmm. So it was like from Austria this love with a special touch. Nice. It even it still had the smell, so it oh, was a fresh box of uh, <laughs> chocolate flavored discs. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right anyway. So your, yeah, your piece so, of news, yeah, my news with this is um, they've just announced the um, the very first Amstrad CPC ASCII competition, um, and the site is Logiker. That's with a K. dot com. Um, it's the first Amstrad ASCII competition um, beginning in June twenty twenty one, which is now. Um, so. Um, the deadline is, is, uh, it, it, the deadline is June 30th. So, so chop, chop, if you want to enter that and, um, they'll be the, the, it'll be presented and released on, um, uh, July 3rd and 4th and the results on, will be announced on July 10th and 11th. And nice, there, and there will be prizes like you know Steam codes and stuff like that. Um, mm. And there's there's the rules. We'll put a link in the podcast description where you can read the rules, where you can see all the stuff that that how you can mm. vote and all that whatnot. Logiker, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. that that's the guy that um, was responsible for the German digital talk disc make until recently. Right, right. Yeah, we had right. we had him mentioned a couple of times in, in the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. So that is happening. Put a link to that so everyone can go do that because, you know, Petsky or Jack Askey, as I like to call it, and just regular, you know, ANSI and stuff gets a little bit more attention than everybody else. So let's see, let's <laughs> right. see what the Amstrad can do. Yeah, there are more and more games released by it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's, that's all I got. Nice. So... Should we... Now I have to decide whether I want to leave the preserved games brand in or not. Well, I mean, you know, that's up to you. I'm not. Yeah, it's still, it's assuming, still, it still makes, this one. still makes me sad. Still makes yeah. me sad. Yeah. I went through all those lengths as a teenager, and nobody is yeah. taking the effort, at least looking at the discs and giving me feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And I got tired of asking. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same with uh, Last Ninja Four. That I think it was uh, 50 years ago. We had an interview with the guy, 
and um, turned out they didn't find a potential graphic artist, so the game never finished. Hmm. Which is a shame because they got a they got a license or an agreement for the original uh, um, uh, producer to finish the game Last Ninja Four for this is before never happened. Yeah. System three, by the way, still exists nowadays. Of course, they are doing games for Switch and so on, and they still they still say on their homepage on and their Facebook that in a few years. They will make a Kickstarter for the na- new Last Ninja game. So we are still waiting for that. Hmm. I mean, when, when was the last entry about that? 2017 or something? Something like that, yeah. I will link to that. Yeah, but I was actually talking to a friend about it. And he was surprised, like, System 3 is still around? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Doing Switch games of, of you know... Giant, giant building builder or whatever. So, well, um, uh, <laughs> John Q. Public Games. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we should probably get to the interview now because we've talked for half an hour. Or we graped for right. half an hour. So. <laughs> I lost it a bit. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Well, talk to you then. Yes. Enjoy the interview. She's right there. Today, we have another guest, as always. And today, it's Dennis Orbai, and you are a Japanese retro expert. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> thanks for the call, guys. And thanks for in, uh, inviting me to this uh, podcast session. So, yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Dennis. I'm an avid retro, I would say, video game player and by now retro player for more than 25, 26 years now. Oh. I started back when I was a little child playing like Super Super Nintendo with my friends who were allowed to own one. I, my parents forbid me back then. Mm-hmm. Then with like 11, 12 years, I got a Game Boy from my grandparents. Afterwards, then my parents caved in and bought me a, a, a Sega Saturn. And since then, basically, I'm rolling the video game highway, so to speak, especially with a focus on Japanese games, which I started liking, take a liking for. Back then, even like 20, 22 years ago, when the Sega Saturn, when they, my parents bought me one, and my father one went to Hong Kong for a business trip and brought me back like a stack of Japanese Saturn games. That's basically when I was hooked, together with like, getting us very high interest in Japanese subcultures, animation, manga, those kind of things, like, like the classic entry drugs into the Japanese subcultural world, I would say. Uh-huh. And since then, basically, I'm still hooked to Japanese, especially Japanese retro gaming, and still love them to this day. And there are two special things about you. You are collecting Neo Geo games that sometimes oh. are in their thousands of value, and you are fluent in Japanese. That's correct. <laughs> I, yeah, I, due to my interest in like Japanese animation and video gaming and everything connected to Japan, I finished like high school back in 2003. Already started learning Japanese way back in 2000 when I was like 16 years old, 
like with the, we had like this little small books from Dupont or Pont or how they're called, and you could like do it yourself learning. I mean, after mm-hmm. some couple of months, I figured out that's crap. Like you don't really learn a new language, at least not an Asian language by doing yeah. it yourself books. Yeah. Which is why I started back then in 2000, uh, going regularly to a Japanese, Japanese language classes in Frankfurt here. Saturday morning starting at 8 a.m. So Friday night parties were a no-go for me because like <laughs> 6 a.m. in the morning I would be sitting already in the train to, to Frankfurt for learning Japanese. And I basically stick to learning Japanese and to the fascination that the country and its culture were for, gave me. So I started also then after graduating high school, I started studying Japanese and Japanese culture and business administration, so all the three of them together at university. Lived some time afterwards in Japan, and I am also, due to my time of spending over there, married to a Japanese woman, which helps me tremendously, of course, to keep up with my Japanese language, to keep them up, my mm-hmm. Japanese language skills, and not lose them or like start to forget them, because people tend to forget something like that very quick, if you don't use it in your daily life, mm-hmm. which I do, so thanks. Big thanks to my wife. Thanks to her, I'm still... Now, does she... Can she speak German and or English? Well, yeah, that's like the downside to it. I have admit she speaks... She speaks German enough to live here and also English, but not as good... Not as fluent as I am in Japanese, I admit. Oh, okay. So then, then, then you're essentially forced to keep up on your Japanese. Yeah, probably. If I Maybe if I didn't have, like, been that fluent in Japanese, maybe her German would have gotten better and more fluent. <laughs> so that's, like, the downside to that. She, like, she paid the cost for me to keep up, keep my Japanese skills. I <laughs> 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 Okay, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, that's so, so like... basically, you know four languages. Turkish, German, English, and Japanese. Exactly. But you're not working as a translator for some reason. Yeah, no, translation actually requires another couple of years of separate studying at university. Ah, I see. You need a separate, like, uh, master, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I know, and I know Japanese friends of mine who are translators, and it's a harsh business environment. Like, the clients most of the time are very ungrateful, and you're happy if you can pay your bills and rent, basically. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So you rather focus on collecting Neo Geo games? Exactly. That's <laughs> like uh, like other people buy stock trades, or, or like uh, Warren Buffett also does stock trading and stuff like that. I buy Neo Geo games. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we're no we're no stranger to that. I mean, looking behind any of us, and you can you know. Yeah. <laughs> happening, you know. So who who has who has? Yeah, I would say on the on the scala of one to not very healthy uh, fascination, I would say we're probably very high on the scale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, um, so so let's talk a bit about this topic. I mean, what is going on retro-wise in in Japan? I mean, I was in Tokyo in twenty seventeen. And I was there right at the time when Sonic Mania was released. And uh, before that, I actually had an, a podcast interview with Sega about it. Mm. And and interestingly, I saw that next to the you know um, machine, uh, next to the Super Mario Kart machines and stuff they had over there, they also had PCs that were stuck into arcade cabinets running Sonic Mania. And then I would wonder why would people even do that if it's exact the same game you would have on PCs at home. That didn't make much sense to me. 
Actually, I think some of those like those computer stationary station those solutions they're not actually regular personal computer like B 2 C market uh, uh, devices. Those actually dedicated like uh, arcade computers. For example, some companies like Konami they've got still like the the dancing games, the rhythm games, and you can buy basically what would you what the, like the arcade. Uh, uh, center owners would do is they would buy like one of those stationary caps or lease them from the from the publishers and have them still have them connected to the internet and regularly download like new updates games or like subscriptions in order to run the game from the arcade caps it's not anymore like in the past you've got a pcb board you ram it the jammer connector into it most of the games that nowadays like those rhythm games from konami they're based on a subscription model mm -hmm. ah i think that's what you saw there basically that was like a dedicated uh, uh, station for arcade gaming because i mean like you all know like jama or pcb based games i mean those are there's like the retro now there's the past but the games that are still left nowadays and are running on like rather high level quality and graphics i said most of them run on like like those kind of dedicated stations and not on old-fashioned pcb boards anymore Right. Which is interesting because in 2012, when I was in Brazil, they used MAME PCs. Ah. Yeah, Brazil is a very special. The whole of South America, they are very into MAME. Which, I mean, from from an economic perspective, makes sense because like the income of a lot of people is not very high. Or it's not like you can afford like a 60 to 70, 80 dollar game. Have oh. it imported from the US. Worst case, pay taxes on it. So I mean, MAME is like also like from in like in the Middle East, like in Turkey or like in the, some of the Arab countries, is still very famous, very loved. A lot of people I know that from South America play on MAME. So it's probably more common that you're gonna find a MAME setup instead of a regular uh, real gaming cap. Yeah. Yeah, you fix it. Oh, suddenly you're that's not nice. dark anymore. My my value, my poison dart fox went now dark. So that's why. <laughs> Wow, another nice. topic for another time. Uh, so, 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 so anyway, um, I I heard a lot of uh, times from community people, especially on Twitter, saying that retro and arcade in Japan is is um, going down, down, and well, even an interesting in Japan, thing. Arcades are closing. I don't know. If well, interesting true. thing with Japan that that is always confused me was that that like you know there was uh, we're talking about retro in japan the you know the commodore 64 was released in japan there were atari machines released in japan a lot of times they were made in japan and yet software and 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 scenes for them are not something that we've ever really seen you know like there was no demo scene for the c64 in japan that is you know, visible to, yeah, to yeah. us. No, I don't think it took off like that much or like it did here in Europe, especially or in mm -hmm. the US. Also, what you should not forget is that in Japan back then, Sharp, the X80, X86000 or the Fujitsu FM Towns, or right. of course also the PC98 had very strong footholds in on, in the local market. And mm -hmm. I just recently saw an interesting, I read an article that especially neck or like also with the with the, with the pc98 they would basically have a monopoly on the market and strangle out and kick like uh mob out all the other competitors 
Mm. So I think that's also the reason why like Commodore and those kind of devices had a probably a tougher standing in Japan comparable to like nowadays with my, like Microsoft and the Xbox consoles. Right, right. So I don't think back then it really uh, that there was that much of a scene like it was here in Europe or the UK, for example, or Netherlands. But I do know, for instance, that nowadays there are legend, the so-called retro legend, I think, was at events and festivals the post uh, before pre-corona, of course, where people would actually meet and exchange demos, exchange their own program, custom game, uh, like uh, mm. their own games, shareware, and uh, those kind of things. Also, like graphics demos they've produced, they've produced on the devices, and so it's a bit similar, but on a much much smaller scale i'd say right hmm. Hmm. would be interesting to have some links or info or perhaps pictures about it because yeah. that is something as aj said i never heard about it myself hmm. so yeah, it's sure. interesting to yeah see. well i think it was either you don't have to send them now you can, you can yeah. send them later on yeah. yeah you can send them later and we put it overlay during the video version of the interview if you like oh. um yeah, yeah, and, and I also saw that the prices went quite high on certain games. <laughs> I think I think the most rare, rarest game on the Game Boy is actually Seth. Seth is, I, yeah, yeah. I, I remember Seth. I was buying it four years ago for 60 uh, euros. What, what, what's it called? Seth. Z-A-S. It's a shooting game basically on Game Boy. Seth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was like a mid-level expensive game, I'd say, a couple of years ago. Then it basically took off, exploded, and nowadays you pay, like, depending on the condition and whether it's CIB or not, you pay up to $1,000, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Why? Exactly. Why? And I paid 60 euros four years ago for the same condition. I was like, oh my god, well, how did it, it raise so much in the yeah, last four years? why did it raise so much? There is actually, like, the Japanese retro game market adheres to its own rules, to be honest. I think <laughs> sometimes a lot of things don't make sense at all. Well, well for once, of course, there's, there's still Japanese retro games are loved by the Japanese people themselves. Although I'd say like this kind of hardcore collecting or like, like deep dives into the retro scene in gaming hobby is still rather niche. Mm -hmm. But really? the average Japanese guy will, and family will still know the Famicom games. They will maybe buy a couple of them for like, let's say maybe uh, 10, 20 bucks. So the real hardcore collectors are still rather like compared to the regular gamers a niche, but there's obviously a very big influx of foreign retro uh, game collectors who go to Japan, buy up as much as they can, and drive either a fly back home, or you've got of course local resellers that buy up the games and sell them outside to, of the, uh, to other countries. And I mean, the Japanese are not stupid themselves. They, they see they cannot buy a game for, like, say, 100 bucks, and they know they can sell it for 250 bucks on the internet to foreign collectors. I mean, why not? They're going to do the same thing. So right. what, what you got right now is that you got a lot of resellers, a lot of people who, I think, wanted those games or were interested in them in the past or maybe just learned about them recently and, got, and now got the disposable income that they can use for, the, for their hobbies. So I think it's basically this connection of resellers, people with disposable income and short-term attention span and no patience, not much patience, not much patience, so they buy up the first offer they see. And of course, there's also not really the scarcity of the games, but condition. I mean, you're talking, for example, if it's about Nintendo, 
We're talking about games that are made in cardboards, paper cardboards. And I mean, you can keep them as cool and store them as dark as you want and safe as you want. Sooner or later, those paper cardboards, they're not, they're not made for eternity. They were made as child's products. So, I mean, it's also, so the quality of those cardboards when back into, when Nintendo back then produced them was probably not, okay, guys, 30 years from now, we will have nifty collectors wanting to buy them mint and top condition. So I think those factors all play together which led to a surge of the retro pricings. Hmm. But I think Good it also, idea. like, sometimes it's just like this bandwagon phenomena. For example, in Japan, you've got the uh, retro or like the subculture gaming chain Surugaya. So might, some of you might talk about it. They're like one of the biggest cultural shop chains mm-hmm. in Japan. And they basically, to some extent, dictate the prices of the mar- in the market in Japan. So Surugaya puts, let's say, uh, ZAS out for $1,500. What the other uh, sellers will do, they will not like drop their prices in order to sell their goods. They will adjust their prices to Surugaya. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I did a good choice in buying it four years ago. Sixty dollars, I think, was a steal. Yes, even even four years ago, I think it was a steal. So, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, the problem was a DHL. I mean, I mean, it passed customs. No problem. But in the sorting center for my city, some guy decided it goes against the terms of services, and oh, they okay. returned it to China. I remember. And I had it. I had to get it sent to me a second time. I remember we talked about it before. Yes, after it passed customs, that was oh. so crazy. So they had to ship it a second time, and in and in this time they relied on the customs form and said book, and then it it went through, you know. And to this day, DHL Germany denies refunding the sender. <laughs> so oh. hey, fortunately, I I was I was I was just um, a customer. So it's their loss, not mine, but it's still yeah. still silly. Um, anyway, you were talking about the stores, and perhaps Martin can jump in, because he told me when we prepared for this interview that he has heard about those little retro stores. Perhaps, Martin, you can throw in your perspective. Well, I, I just really don't know where, where you wanted me to start there. Um... I have heard, you know, you're talking about retro stores. I have heard... Um from some uh, a friend that that uh, has family in, in Japan and goes there quite often that there is um they've got like little vending machines where you can get retro stuff yeah yeah they also they came up with those like, a couple of years ago I think they are shop or like places where you can like I mean they are like low level or like and like lower level games obviously mm-hmm. like you're not gonna put in a $500 game to one of those vending machines but there are right. vending machines that you can pull out like Famicom cartridges, I mean, that's yeah, like yeah. the most basic thing because like Famicom cartridges without a cardboard package, without the manual, I mean, the abundance of those games and cartridges in Japan is astonishing. Like mm-hmm. back then when I first visited, they would have like huge like baskets and you would have, you could like just grab with your hands, dive into it in the, <laughs> a lot of like, hundreds of loose Famicom cards because they wouldn't know what to do with them. Right, right. So yeah, there are those vending machines also like some kind of not necessarily a trick, but a new idea to sell off those like rather cheap cards. Huh. And of course, because you mentioned our retro shops, uh, Jörg, there are a lot of like Japanese video game retro shops in all over Japan. Like with of course the like the main locations, of course, being Osaka and Tokyo, Akihabara. 
or the, that's the, let's just say the famous ones are all lo located and gathered there. And it's interesting because there are there are like small vendors, vendor shops, like really mom and pop kind of shops that focus on retro game and like niche games. And they're like the big change like Surugaya, Super Potato, Mandarak, and how they're all called. Super Potato? Super Potato is like one of the most famous chains, retro gaming chains in Japan. I can later sh uh, share some pictures. Okay. They are just called Super Potato. And they're like a 100% right, sure. retro okay. gaming shop. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite interesting because they used to be like a regular retro gaming shop. And now they change more into like... Instead of just only selling games, you're more like of experience the retro thing. Mm -hmm. Like they were like arcade caps there. You can like buy merchandise, not only games. You 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 set foot into one of the stores. First thing they will jump into your face like the huge Instagram logo with the account name and everything. You are here, please share, share, share things like <laughs> that. Which is also interesting. This kind of change because back then when I was visiting those stores in the past. Like you pick out your camera, you get really nasty looks and snarky remarks from the from the clerk, sales clerks. Like, oh no, 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 please, please, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And nowadays it's like, like here's our Instagram. Don't forget to tag us. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you want to say, Martin? You wanted to say something. Well, I, I remember a friend of mine uh, visited uh, Osaka uh, with a friend uh, for I don't know for some days or a week. And he uh, showed me pictures, and I saw a lot of of these little stores. They're actually having uh, boxes full of hardware, where nobody knows if the hardware will work in any way. So you get in there, you buy stuff just unchecked, but uh, mm -hmm. from from the bottom of the store to the top, all full of it. How do you call this these ones? They are, yeah, they, they basically a lot of shops have them. They are like, they, they're, those corners are, are like li literally called junk corners, junk hardware, really? junk software. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like the, I mean, it's of course it's like a bit of a, like a, like a raffle. You may have bad luck and choose the one device that's like totally broken down and worthless. But most of the times it's small things or sometimes even perfectly working devices or games in those junk corners for like a little amount of money and they work flawlessly okay or just like like some con some uh some contacts dirty or like some battery leaked out or something like that something that's fixable for anybody with a little bit of experience you've got like a brand new game or device that, uh, hardware afterwards then wow interesting so i could get my neo geo and uh, with some luck <laughs> i bought once a neo geo controller is controller at book off Book off is like uh, one of the biggest like secondhand goods chain in mm. Japan. They, I mean the 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 name already gives it away. Book off. They originally come from 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 books like secondhand right. books that yeah. you can buy. Yeah. Yeah. Also, don't forget there's also that they're like their sister chain that's called Hard Off. <laughs> yeah. Any new jokes? Now's the chance. <laughs> so they sell a lot of junk stuff. And I once bought a Neo Geo IS original control uh, arcade stick for I think like 15 bucks. Okay. When I tested at home, it didn't work. I look, I opened it up, and it was like either some uh, some uh, pins were like broken up, or like the cables were like a bit like they had a corrosion on it. So I just called a friend, have it fixed. He just shot the cable a little bit in the work after work, and for 15 bucks, and like a beer that I gave him, I had the almost brand new IS controller, and you pay for those sometimes nowadays up to 70, 80 dollars for oh, yeah. a controller. Wow. 
Wow, yeah. I bought an, an X2 in one our, our arcade controller for Windows for five euros. Huh. You know, and now if you look at eBay, 60, 50, yeah, something. Yeah. Uh, like 10, uh, like, like, um, like, um, well, like five times, uh, 10 times more. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's, it's, um, it's really, really crazy. Uh, oh. There's one thing about Japanese seller I never understood. I mean, you know, in Germany, we have this customs thing. If you don't want to have troubles with customs, then get the invoice printed and attached to yeah. the outside of the parcel, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And when you, when, you, when you ask Swiss sellers or American sellers, no problem. When you ask Japanese sellers, they, they tell you, sorry, I can't do it. Please cancel your order. Oh. And I'm like, why don't you have printers in Japan? No, what's the I, problem? I, yeah, I think I'm not sure. It might be due to uh, to the to the next letter, to the regulations by the Japanese post office that they may not allow that. I'm not sure. And from my experience with Japan and the Japanese society, another very big imp, uh, important thing is that like Japanese people usually don't want to go, go out of their way in order to change something that is already like set. Like the way it's set, yeah. you go that down that way. You want next to a wish? No, you don't. Hmm. Or you have the sushi and want to interchange the sushi pass with another box? No, you don't. What hmm. you want to have something printed on the outer box, although nobody else in Japan wants it? No, you don't. Even like, if it conflicts with the rules of the destination country. In that <laughs> case, most of the Japanese, also like a lot of Japanese, although they learn English in in school, are not really that like fluent and okay. strong skilled in in foreign languages, okay. also in English. So, and they don't like hassle. Like rather than having the hassle of like figuring it out and doing it, they will just outright say, "No, you know what? I uh, I'm gonna." Okay. okay, so it yeah. depends on the luck of the sellers you have. I uh, for me, there are, yeah, there okay. are sellers that are focused on on reselling to foreign countries obviously okay they most likely won't have any troubles with that because they are used to it they know what they need to look out for ah. but regular japanese sellers that don't are not that experience i'd say most of the time they will probably they said it's not worth the hassle even if it would be worth it and just cancel it ah, yeah. okay okay yeah well at least i decided okay don't do it i take whatever whatever is happening here in germany yeah um yeah yeah, and, and, and I, I remember some 12 years ago, I was ordered something from um, Amazon Japan that was before they offered an English version of the homepage. And the seller, he even translated the, um, uh, the Amazon um, invoice for me into English. I was like, oh, my hand, that's so nice. That wasn't necessary, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, those kind of like small things they will actually do go go out of the way again to do to like satisfied customer add uh, some little Japanese sweets and snacks, write a handwritten letter. Thanks for buying this game. I hope you enjoyed and l let's see you next time and things like that. Actually, that they will do. Yeah. But things like can you do like change the address? I booked on the other address. Can you please say that? Those kind of things they are like at least in the past. Okay. Are not really. We're not really. Well, I never felt it was an, a language barrier. It was like just like no, I don't do it. It is also a cultural thing, exactly. It's okay. a society and cultural yeah. thing. Which brings me to a funny anecdote. I went to a Japanese showcase secondhand store in Akihabara okay. in two thousand three, uh, two thousand three, and showcase stores are basically those are little like showcases and little corner stores that you that private that regular people can rent. 
to sell their like secondhand or their old merchandise, animes, figures, games, whatever they want. And the sales clerks will take a bit of the uh, of a fee out of the money and sell it for them basically, and give them like shows, uh, showcases, and uh, shelves where they can display their, their stuff they want to sell. And once I saw in 2003 in Tokyo, I found a whole set of Samurai Spirit plush figures. Wow. So from the SNK, the famous Samurai Showdown series called Samurai Spirits in Japan. And I was like, oh my God, back then I was an avid SNK gaming and merchandise fan. So I said, oh my God, there's a whole set, complete set of plush figures from Samurai Spirits too. I need those figures, <laughs> uh, those plush figures. And then like the sales clerk would open it up the showcase, look into it. There's no price tag. Well, yeah, then check it for it. No, there's no price tag on it. Yeah, well, I say, well, check on the system. It's not in the system. There, if there, either there's a price tag on it, or we're gonna sell it. Oh, really? And I was like, 30 minutes. I was discussing arguing with him. He was pissed. I was pissed. In the in the last <laughs> moment, I like, I gave up. You know what? Fuck this shit. I'm not gonna take this anymore. I was gonna walk away, but I looked on the ground and see the price tag that fell off when you opened the showcase. I was like, oh. Up, up. Here you go, you. Oh, guys, I, I didn't call him you little fucker, but it's what I thought. Here, here it is. Fucking sell me now the plush figures. Let's get them up on my on my. Uh, on <laughs> and that is actually story. that's a very good example of a lot of a lot of things in Japan work. Like there are certain ways and manners and processes that you stick to. Mm-hmm. You don't go away from them. You don't you don't like change the road or the route or you don't like turn left turn right when the way is like forward right because, like, yeah, Japanese people, at least in the past were like really like not capable of dealing with those kind of things though the new generations did change of course but i had a lot of those kind of anecdotes back in japan when i was visiting well of course of course as a buyer you don't know what kind of seller you are confronted with if it's a mm-hmm. young open-minded exactly. one or an old one going old-fashioned using Google Translate. Sure. <laughs> Google Translate, there are sellers back there that will like openly like show their dismay towards you for being a foreigner buying Japanese games. Even if they oh. need to sell it to you, they won't hide their dismay they have at you entering their, their store. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, so it did get better over the years because I mean there are a lot of influx from Jap- from foreign tourists, foreign mm-hmm. residents, like also just people via Twitter, Japanese retro collectors connecting with foreign foreigners outside of Japan. So I think it get it's getting better by the by every year actually. Yeah, yeah, that is actually why we wanted to do this interview to have a starting point yes. because Mod and I we were actually sitting one Sunday together going through possible people from Japan we could interview <laughs> and uh, gather different certain topics of the Japanese retro culture mm-hmm. and preserving culture because what we figured out over the years is that there are certain countries that nobody covers like Russia for example mm-hmm. then we had the Russia Russian computer museum and actually the technical uh, responsible person is a demo scener like <laughs> wow you know so um, we always wondered is if there's something similar in Japan, and uh, so that is why we wanted to make this series um, and, and have you as a starting figure <laughs> oh, that's nice. uh, introducing into the topic, because we were like, who, who are the Japanese freaks in, in Germany? And, uh, and of course, your name was Trapp. <laughs> like, he even knows Japanese, so who is, who oh. is the be- best, better person than you? You know, so 
yeah. So, yeah. so, so, um, so the the starting question was: Is retro and and those arcade places are they going down, or is it actually um, a wrong a wrong perspective we people from outside of Japan have? Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of retro gaming, like the regular consumer based uh, retro gaming. It still surges like crazy. I think there's still a lot of people within Japan buying and selling and trading and playing those games. Like I mentioned earlier, video gaming is not, to some extent at least, not like thrown upon like it was in the past here in Europe, or in, especially in Germany. Like you play video games like you're one step away from murdering your family. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. right. Killer games. Yeah, that yeah. was never like that in here uh, over there in Japan. But you still have to differentiate between like the actual hardcore collectors and gamers and nerds, so to speak. We are still niche and regular normal people that sometimes buy a game because they want to reenact their childhood or they like just video games and want to play with the family or show their, show their kids. I think there are still you need to differentiate between those two groups. But I think like consumer-based retro gaming is still a big thing in Japan. But what also shows in like uh, Surugaya, the chain that I mentioned, opening up more and more specialty gaming shops all over the country, having now also dedicated English websites or foreign language-based websites for foreign fans, so they can directly order via, uh, not reseller, but via like uh, those buying services that a lot of mm -hmm. Japanese companies offer nowadays. So I think consumer-based gaming is still going strong. As for the classic, the regular the arcades that how that we how we know them, I'd say that is actually a dying species, to be honest, unfortunately. Mm. That's really? actually true, yeah. A lot of those, those big places. And now recently, unfortunately, due to Corona, a lot of the big places also in Tokyo had to close down. Yeah. Like the Sega Tower, I think, and another another big one also had to close down. Mikado, one of the most famous ones in Japan and outside of Japan, they had to start a crowdfunding campaign so they can pay their bills, basically. And I've, I've saw, I saw over the years that a lot of those arcade places, the classic arcade gaming places, either closed down or had everything exchanged like those coin metal games. Like less, I wouldn't say gambling, but those kind of like, with a touch of gambling kind of metal games they have in Japan, also pachinko parlors and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So it's not anymore like like it was in the past. I mean, I think to some extent there's also a natural development because you just have to see like the hardware generations we have now for consumer, for regular consumers like PlayStation, Xbox, even Nintendo Switch and everything. Those are so powerful, like on their level, powerful devices. It doesn't make sense to produce a very costly and high quality and high performance arcade game that you know, with all the development and uh, money and everything, manpower that went in there, you will never get that amount of money or like the, the revenue and the income back of it, out of it again. I mean, back then, 2D games, you know, like the Neo Geo, like, was like one of those games that was able to actually deliver the one-on-one -on -one arcade feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. Not so yeah. Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, or like Super Famicom, Famicom, those, they are all like toned down game versions of the arcade games. But nowadays, it's like the other way around. Like, arcade games would never be able to keep up with the actual next-gen consoles that we have right now. So I think that's also one of the big reasons why, like, the Japanese arcade uh, industry is dying down. 
also with people losing interest and saying, why should I go to an arcade center and pay money if I can do, can play the game of the same quality on my own TV at home? Right. right. And have it right at my disposal. So I think that's one of the main reasons that in Japan the arcade industry as a whole is dying dying away. But there's still, of course, those niche arcade centers, game centers that have focused on the niche fans, the hardcore fans that are focused on like making themselves known via social media and things like, that, like the Mikado Game Center or like shows like Games in DX that also I think help them like get like revival. Those kind of places, if Kona, how the pandemic once dies hopefully down or gets solved or whatever, I think those places will still go on and thrive. But your one of, one of the like, average game center, I don't think those will survive in the future. I guess, you know, it's sort of like the same sort of thing that's happened all kind of throughout the world where, where just arcades have kind of fallen to the wayside because you, the games you're playing at home exactly. are probably way better than the stuff you're playing there and you don't have to pay the, the quarter or however much, you know, it is to yeah. play the game. You know, like, I, like I'm not going to go to an arcade and play Call of Duty when I can do that for free here, you know, or something. But... But the, and, and where there are resurgences, you know, there's a couple I know that have opened up in uh, in in New Jersey in, in the U.S. Here, you know, Richie Knuckles has one of them. Um, it's mostly like it's the social aspect of being in a space with other people and playing the games and and kind of, you know, the same thing with pinball. And it's interesting, you brought up the pachinko parlors because that's like the we talked to Hog and Krentz, and that was pachinko was the the what what became pinball that was like the precursor to pinball right you know it's, you, you it's, mean it's, you mean um are, are um do you mean barcades no 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 pachinko it's a it's a places the places that open yes 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 yeah yes, yeah, well, actually, yeah they've been calling them yeah. barcades yes but it's also just the, but but again it's mostly based on the social aspect of being in a space with other people playing games you know, competitively playing games. You know, I remember exactly. being a kid and going to the arcade and playing. Uh, I think uh, you know this is kind of later on. This is in the '90s. I think we're Soul Calibur was what we were playing, and we would just, you know, I'd get on that. I was really good with one character, and it was just kind of like I'd get on there, and people would just come up and challenge you, and just you know keep destroying them and over and over and over again. And it was kind of like, you know, just the the social aspect of just you know being able to play against people in 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 a space. And I yeah, think that's lost a lot, but it's coming back in little little niche markets. Exactly. That's what I think also, like, the bar case, like you have already mentioned, and also these niche game centers, they are not just focused on, like, on people being able to play the games because, frankly, they can play them on any console, on any system they want at any time. Mm -hmm. It's more about, like, the social thing. It's more about the group feeling. It's more mm -hmm. about challenging other people and about being, like, a community. I right. Say. Like, the community aspect is something that helps those little niche game centers to thrive. Together, of course, like I said, with social media, making live events, making tourneys, tournaments, and over via internet and Twitter and everything. Mm -hmm. So I think that keeps those places alive. While the regular game centers that were, were just existing for people to be able to play the games and have like quarter munch caps, most of them, I think, they either close down or they focus on like those metal games or like in the the Purikura, the self shooting camera caps and things like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, do you think? Do you think um, after the pandemic they could revive 
or do you think they will stay di dying out? They will uh, keep dying like, out. Mm, I I'd say the small ones that somehow will manage to survive, they will definitely re revive due to the community. We have very strong communities behind them who are supporting them, who like paying, like make crowdfunding donation campaigns so they can pay their rent and bills basically. But the regular ones, I think they will close down. Like, like I said, Sega Tower, one of the, the mm. landmarks of like Japanese arcade game center mm. culture in Japan, in Akihabara. I mean, they had recently to close down. I saw on Twitter another, forgot the name, another quite famous and old place had to close down due to the pandemic. I think those regular places that have need not kind of, sort of like niche existence and that those communities and followers behind them to back them up, they will lose out on this basically. Mm. So good, I have been in Japan already. Um, <laughs> Martin, you wanted to say something. You wanted to throw. Yeah, well, I actually think uh, that uh, all all the videos I see on YouTube, for example, when I, when I look for arcades and and stuff, I don't know that we don't have here in Germany. Actually, here we have one arcade here in Cologne there, and that's it. That that, that if if I want to feel or have the arcade feeling, I have to to, to drive to Seligenstadt to the Flippern oh. Arcade Museum. Um, so I, I, I always see these more special uh, arcades like like DDR Max or Dance Rush, where actually the the people these are controllers you can't have at home. I have my DDR uh, stuff here for for all kinds of consoles, but if you have these uh, machines, yeah. big machines with big lightning and 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 showing off actually, and it, I think so. I think I, I I what I feel is that that people show off there they do their stuff also to get uh, to get uh, other people known known to other people actually mm -hmm. i don't know how, how the culture is in japan if yeah yeah in japan i think it's it's a bit similar though those who do it like on a very high level like very good level usually they meet up with their friends they go to with their friends and they they do their routine crazy breakdancing stuff but not necessarily to meet or greet other people basically they're like like you got like those crazy youtube videos with people like having their eyes like shut like uh, closed and like having a mask over and like playing title transition both similar <laughs> to play mode alone with their backs turned to the cap mm -hmm. and doing like perfect on hardest yeah. level yeah. i mean those kind of people just go there to, to i don't know what maybe like Meditate while doing that, but most of them say it's not better to come to like meet new people. That I think is still like to the uh, is more with the regular caps and the regular like the, the fighting community and those kind of things. Mm. And I think that's like actually what is dying down in most my dying out in most of the in the game centers that are left that are not these kind of niche special ones with a specific like community or followership. Those. The candy caps, so-called candy caps, like the Sega Blast City or like the Capcom Impress, the the Equate 2 from Taito, like those machines where you played the 2D games like Metal Slug, Street Fighter series, King of Fighters, those kind of games. Those game centers that are really like focusing on those, I think there's not much not much left of them. So they do somehow thrive in their own niche corner and survive, but I don't think that will be like like a big revival focusing on that kind of gaming hmm. king of fighters you just brought back memories when you said that oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that was that's a good that was a good game no great game especially when like me you in singapore with your parents as a 17 year old and getting your ass whooped by like seven year old indian kids because they play all <laughs> get all day night all night long they only play king of fighters 98 back then 
and you come yeah. in like all pouting, putting like like you're some kind of big peacock, and then you get like feathers uh, whipped off, basically. Well, I had, yeah, yeah, I, and I had like the the I I I love those kids, and 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 just like I, I was that was another game I was good at, and it was I was good at it cheaply, like. Like you know, I I remember distinctly. We 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 had a <laughs> friends and I. We figured it out. We we, we called it ball theory, because there's the one guy that's got the ball on a chain, and all you do is just whip the thing around, uh, and no one can get at you. No one can get near you. You just they, they come at you. They hit the ball, and so you just stand there swinging this ball around the whole time. And and you know, these kids would get so angry because you know you just they they just they can't touch you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, talking about um. Like uh, communities or, or circles, uh, I think it's called in, in Japan. Um, do you have any uh, experiences with, with, I don't know if I pronounce it correctly, a Dojin Software? Dojin Software, yeah, Dojin Software, basically. Yeah, I got, I don't collect them that much or I'm like that much into them, but I got a lot of friends here in Germany and also Japan who got like very huge collections of Dojin Software. I mean, like to do an explanation again. Dojin software is based like homebrew. It's like the Japanese term for homebrew software that like most like one two people work at home and then publish them at like like the game legend ga events in Japan. I mean, they are like my. I mean, series like the 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 Toho series from Zun. I mean, one of the most famous like shooting and like uh, bullet hell series like and all off off. Uh, what is it on offspins that they created? Is basically it was originally a Dojin soft made by Zun himself. Mm. So yeah, I mean it's it's a big scene, big thing in Japan, and I think also outside of Japan, it's quite known and loved by a lot of gamers. So oh, it's not anymore like the like the niche of the niche of the niche, like only certain like <laughs> people knowing about it. Thanks to the internet and globalization, I think a lot a lot of gamers now know about those games. I mean, you can even go to the German media market or Saturn. Uh, electric retailer chains shops, and they will have like uh, Toho games there for PlayStation. They will have Dojin Soft games that uh, that came out in Japan like two years ago. They will have the German or at least English localized versions sitting in the shelves in a German electric retailer shop. I mean, imagine that. When I started reading manga back then in when was that? Like in 97, 96, people would ridicule me and call and throw slurs at me for reading strange Japanese uh, adult novels or like reading like Sailor Moon porn. <laughs> I wouldn't like to hide your mangas from people so they, they don't like get agitated at you. And now you got like Dojin soft software games from Japan at the, at the biggest German like, uh, retailer shop. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting how, how globalization and also the internet changed this from a, a positive thing. Well, of course, from a collector's view, if you like into like really niche, like heavy, heavy expensive game collecting, mm. for example, take the Neo Geo, then of course, like this globalization actually like backfires in that kind of sense. Yeah. So at least you got your pension secured now. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't bet on that because I don't plan on selling them. And to be honest, you never know. Like it could It's be like, like 10, 15 years. Yeah, in 10, 15 years it could be worth it, maybe because nobody's any more interested. And I don't know. Facebook V2 is the new next thing, and people focus on that. Who knows? Yeah, so it's a bit like <laughs> stock trade. Like you don't actually make money on it, but there's a risk that you lose the, that it loses the value. 
It's okay. actually true. We are mentioned that all the time since 2010, when this retro craze started. Yeah. It's not going down for for any bit at the moment. Luckily, yeah. I'm ha very happy for it because <laughs> I can buy brand new uh, produced Mega Drive controllers. Oh my god! I'd like it to have a lull just a little bit so I can get like you know. Get another 1581 drive for less than $700. <laughs> yes, my friend. That is why I started like 22 years ago. Uh, yeah. when, things yeah. were, when things were doing better. Mm. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's a good perspective. Also, when we did our research, Martin and I discovered there are some organizations doing preserve work. Yes, yes. Which is also something that that doesn't seem to be very um, supported by the governments because they are running off donations, we found. Yeah, I, I forgot the name of the organization, but they, there are several one and, and also a big one that are focused on like uh, refurbishing or like also like renewing or like keeping the history of those games alive, basically. And I think... Uh, not necessarily in the same kind of way as like a, like organizational museum. I would I would mention it the Beep Shop. Maybe you have maybe some of you have heard from it. It's like also it's a it it, it started as a small little like niche retro gaming shop with arcade ca gaming and stuff like that. And now they're like publishing on their own like cotton and like old Japanese classic games. They're republishing them, remaking them. Mm -hmm. And it's still, and now in Japan, I got quite a bit good standing, and also outside of Japan. So there's this research of interest in Japanese retro gaming, like the old stuff, and wanting to keep those things alive, keep that culture and that history alive, which I think is actually a great thing. Because I mean, there are games that were noted, like like the prototypes. Some some avid collector owns one prototype game from the PC Engine, for example, is what was called PC. PC Kororo, uh, I think, or something like that. It's like there's this one prototype copy, and he owns it. And who knows? Maybe if the CD dies down, if the game die or the disc die down, basically, you will never be able. You will have lost the game forever. That's sad. So I think That's like sad. those preserving organizations and those companies, who of course do it for 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 their own benefit, but to like more more publish the old classic games and make them more known to a huge, bigger group of people, I think in the end we're all benefiting from it. Besides yeah. maybe the the, the search, the rise of prices in for retro games, besides that I think we're actually in the golden era of like re-retro, I would let's say call it, where you can get all the information you need, have access to all the games you want to play, and there are so many solutions, devices, remakes and everything that like everybody can find their own niche where they can be happy. I think it's actually a great time. That's true. Although a lot of people is yeah. going, oh my god, everything was bad in the past. I only paid like five bucks for Metal Slug, and and right. my Neo Geo only cost me ten bucks. Yeah, That's but true. those times are gone. So we should, I think, focus on like the good, the positive aspects that have come with globalization right. and the internet right. and everything. Right. Mm. Like like reproductions of old um, of old controllers for the Mega Drive. I mean, I was looking for years for good controllers of the Mega Drive, and oh my God, did they age badly? <laughs> and you know, they they have this they have this uh, this and this pad inside for the connection and stuff, and it was just falling apart. So no way to repairing the controller. You can yeah. just put it in the in the trash can, you know. 
Nintendo controllers, on the other hand, don't have this issue. So, so um, yeah, yeah, genau, exactly. It was this rubber pad, rubber pad. Oh my mm. God, you know? Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, dry and rots and falls yeah, apart exactly, over time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was like, oh my God, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good that we can buy those new um, nowadays. That's amazing. Oh God, yeah. There's so much stuff that is that is new for retro <laughs> stuff because it's in. You know, like like nice. like. Again, for the 64 and, and, and the Amiga and actually anything with an RS-232 uh, serial port, there's Wi-Fi modems for them. So you can plug that into anything. You know, you've got, you know, we've got the SD to IEC on the C64. I mean, just the, the, the fact that, that it is kind of like the golden era of retro computing because, yeah. you know, we've got stuff that I would have killed for back in. Yes. You know, the, the early 90s, late 80s, you know, when I was actually using these machines on the daily, you know, to have like, like, to be able to have a, 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 a 32 gig SD card, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, that's like that, that even, even the hard drives you could get were only like 20 megs. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I could fit the entirety every every C sixty four piece of software on one on this one SD card and and have access to it all at once. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's 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 um it's really interesting. It depends on as Dennis said what you want. Yeah. If you yeah. want if you want old games for sheep, you are living in the wrong place. Yes, that is true. In the wrong time period. Wrong time, but yeah. if you want replacement parts. Um, they call it, I guess they call it aftermarket parts. That's really amazing, you know. I mean, I mean, try. I mean, you you could try like 20 years ago getting replacement Game Boy shells. There was no such thing, you know. Nintendo, Nintendo um, said the lifetime of the console is over. Everything is coming after us, mm-hmm. and suddenly. The Chinese are like making really good quality aftermarket Game Boy shells. Well, it's you've a, got you a, know, you know, Tormod is is modifying them and doing things. You, there's so many things you can get with stuff now, true. and and people, so many people that are 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 making modifications that are, um, you know, like mass produced modifications <laughs> that like everybody can get and add this on. You know, it's it's. Yeah. Exactly, and I think one of one of one thing we should soon not forget is that like for those people who just want to experience the games and play, it's like the best time ever. You don't mm-hmm. need to shell out big bucks for games. You don't need to like well knows any collectors to get their games. You don't need to wander through the wilderness to find that one game that you want. You can play it like on almost on every console system, whatever wherever you want, and still to some extent get the original feeling, the original quality. Yeah, I think that's also another also aspect that, of course, leads to the surge of prices. But you have access to the games in Japan in the Japanese retro market. Those right, were, right. back then in 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 like when I started collecting actually folks on Japanese games back in 2000, uh, 2002 around. That was what we call in German a book with seven seals, a book mm-hmm. with seven seals. Yeah, like you either have connections to Japan. Or you would need to go to one of the like the import shops, with them who would then of course uh, smack uh, uh, what do you call it like smack like another two hundred percent revenue or like price increase on the game on the original price. Mm-hmm. You would then 
you would pay like hefty amounts of money for then back then next gen games that were not available in the regular market you, you could not access them you, you were we were right. uh, relying uh, those you were relying on those import specialty shops here in germany like uh what was it called again there's the one famous one something something cause shop no König shop there's one i i don't know i there's one of those bigger ones and they would have like ridiculous overpriced prices and people would you would pay them either you know somebody from japan or you pay those prices or you just read about those games in the new in the main scene <laughs> and that's it Mm. Yeah, in, it's it's still the yeah. case with games from Brazil. That's exact mm. the same yeah, problem. Example, you need yeah. to know somebody living in Brazil, and yeah. and yeah. and the parents of my friends they they uh, they they say like, oh, are you buying retro trash for your German friend again? <laughs> 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 and he probably answers no, Ma. I'm I'm building up a big uh, uh, reselling imperium here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. At least for the Japanese market, it's not, it's all at the tip of your fingers. It's all available now. Yeah. Even the heavy hitters, even those games that you that you would need still back then or, or, or nowadays also need to shout huge amounts of money. You are they're still available for you. Yeah, well, I mean, you can get you can get ROMs from places. Uh, there's you know we, there's even like you know game streaming like um, the, um uh, who who are the Antstream Antstream Antstream. Yeah. I don't know if they're available in Japan, but I mean it's yeah they, they they have they have expanded the network. They also have servers now in Asia. So yes. Yeah, not 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 in the U.S. but. <laughs> yes, no, they do. Oh, they do. They, they do. They actually, they, I mean, they actually made it uh, free to play a month ago, and oh. actually on the same time expanded their servers into to, Asia and I need to America. Reactivate my account or something because I haven't <laughs> looked at that in a while. No, actually, um, actually, you have to write the port mm. and tell them to switch your account from paid to free, and then mm. you can access the whole service free, free to play. It's yeah. actually. Promotion, uh, promotion based mm, stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, very nice. Very that is nice. awesome. Yes. Learned a lot today. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, like uh, actually, like on on Twitter, I've got I'm connected to quite a lot of like retro Japanese collectors and like also some people who like publish their own stuff on books and like 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 at the Game Legend events and stuff like that. And like, I mean, okay, it's, it sounds a bit like now, I admit, but I've got more than 1,900 followers on, on Twitter. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. So you don't tell me your Twitter. I didn't know your Twitter. No, I'm not telling you. You're not Japanese. Only Japanese people following me. That's, <laughs> okay. It's only as many, it's almost as many followers as uh, as my dog has on Instagram. He's, he's also, he's a, he's, a, he's a Japanese chin. Ah. Yeah, you Bring, see? Bringing it full circle. Right. Sure. Great. Awesome. Well, Wonderful. Yes. Um, so, is there a place? Is there a website that people can go to follow what you're doing? Uh, Instagram, Twitter, any of that actually, stuff that you want to plug? Twitter, yes, uh, I can like share my own later on my account. It's like it's basically retrogames underscore JP on Twitter. Oh, we'll put links to this down. I were point. I'm yeah. pointing, but I don't know where. You know, we'll put links to everything in the okay. podcast yeah. description. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put links to all this in the podcast description so that everybody can check out what you're doing and follow yeah, along at home. If you click on it, that is, of course, you have to understand Japanese because I like 90% of my tweets are in Japanese. Well, that's, that's okay. I mean, that's, you know. 
That's it's interesting. I mean, we had once for for an episode we had the most listeners were from China. Oh, okay. Like, well, okay. Uh, so it really depends on the topic of the podcast guest we figured out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So basically, it's all on your on your Twitter. I also got a YouTube channel that's mainly German, but I, I admit it's like it's like I got a couple of videos and that's it. I always say to myself, today we're gonna cut and do a video, and then I te- I end up playing Assassin's Creed or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I I know exactly how you feel. That's <laughs> the story of my life. I mean, I open up to, to like like uh, what is it called, like magic tools or something like those tools. And I look at them, all yeah. the interfaces, and say, oh my god, I can't de- I can't deal with this, and then I close them again. <laughs> So, so th- thank you for sitting with us. Um, um, it's been it's been awesome, um, and thank you much. Thank you also for inviting me. I think it was very interesting and awesome uh, podcast with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, yeah. you. thank you.